This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. While this podcast doesn't really tell a linear story and will jump back and forth through time, it's actually best to start at the beginning. So I encourage you to go back and do that and start listening at episode one. Episode four, The Conjuring of Michael McDonald. Sleeping with the windows open, and the AM radio, crickets and the distant traffic, and the sounds of Baker Street and Tom Petty. Michael J. Sunset Drive. I grew up in a little yellow house with green shutters on a street called Suncrest Drive. It was a modest home located towards the front of a neighborhood with no outlet. It was a small, circular drive with a cluster of homes split by a road that ran right through the middle, and it was a great place to be a kid. In the first few years of my life, I was giving my parents a hard time at night and wasn't sleeping very well. Since I loved music so much, I apparently begged them to get me a small bedside radio to listen to at night to help me fall asleep. They relented, and surprise, it worked like a charm. All of my uncles on my mom's side were in college at the time, and since I looked up to them, I wanted to listen to the same music that they were listening to. They were into The Who, The Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, and all the other rock bands of the day. The radio stations that I would listen to falling asleep every night played everything from classic rock, which back then was just rock, to all the soft sounds of the 70s music. Basically yacht rock. Even before I was five years old, I knew which radio stations played which kind of music. I would instruct my parents each night to dial in my little bedside radio to fit whatever mood I was in, and I would drift off to my 70s AM radio lullabies. I'm fairly convinced that all that music seeped into my consciousness by osmosis night after night. As a toddler, I was on a steady diet of The Beatles, The Who, Led Zeppelin, The Rolling Stones, Billy Joel, Steve Miller Band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Fleetwood Mac, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Jerry Rafferty, Al Stewart, Player 10CC, the Doobie Brothers, the Eagles, the Alan Parsons Project, and James Taylor, among many, many others. I could go on naming artists and bands for another hour or more. To this day, any of those Sounds of the 70s songs and playlists induced the most visceral type of synesthesia in me that I can't quite explain or even properly describe. It's almost overpowering. I'm taken right back to summer nights falling asleep in my little room in that house on Suncrest Drive with all the windows open during the summertime. I can almost smell the air as I'm writing this. The sounds of crickets and distant traffic from nearby roads creating a sonic bed underneath the music that lulled me to sleep for years on end. To this day, 
I prefer to fall asleep to some kind of sound or ambient noise. My dad was always into jazz and classical music, so between that and all the other types of things I had going into my head, it's no wonder that my musical tastes are still all over the map to this day. There is no genre or type of music off the table for me. I like something in all categories across the board, and I still go out of my way to find new artists and bands to listen to and to become a fan of. Still searching. Music is real magic. It's the one thing that transcends race, creed, religion, skin color, and every other construct we've created that divides us and separates us as human beings. It is the great equalizer. It's the frequency and vibration that brings all humans together and erases all our differences. One, Yamaha's Soundcheck. In 1990, Jason, drummer for Exploding Boy, saw an ad in a music magazine advertising something called Yamaha's Soundcheck. It was a national search for unsigned bands. All that was required was a two-song cassette submission of original music. At that time, we had plenty of recorded material to choose from as we were working on our debut album. So, we sent in a tape and went about our business with our fingers crossed that we'd hear something back. And we did hear back pretty quickly. We went through a couple rounds of judging that year, and we made it pretty far. Unfortunately, we were eliminated before the final round. The people at Yamaha were very encouraging, however, and urged us to enter again the following year. Undaunted and with nothing at all to lose, the following year when the contest opened up again, we sent in another tape, and much to our surprise, we made it to the finals. This round involved Yamaha sending out two judges to go and see each of the ten semifinalist bands perform a showcase in their hometowns to narrow the field down to five finalist bands. These five bands would then be flown out to Hollywood, California to compete on a nationally syndicated television special until a winner was chosen. Over 2,500 bands had entered that year, so we felt really good about this. We managed to get one of the venues we played regularly at that time in Rochester, a place called Backstreets, to open up the afternoon that the representatives from Yamaha flew in from L.A. We gathered as many friends, relatives, and fans of the band as we could to come out and support us, and we played a short set that afternoon. The stars must have aligned in just the right way that day because the band was on point and firing on all cylinders. The Yamaha judges were duly impressed and informed us that they still had a few more bands to see before they could make a decision. They told us they would reach out via phone as soon as they knew who was going to be making the trip to Hollywood. Not very long after that, we received a phone call telling us that this was indeed our year. The judges loved us. We were going to Hollywood. A few months later, we boarded a flight from Rochester to LAX. We were asked to document our trip and to supply as much video content as possible so that Yamaha could take the footage and chop it up to use bits and pieces as part of the final television show. That was the easy part for us. Fortunately, in a time before everyone had a high-quality video camera in their pocket on their phone, we always had a video camera around somewhere. We documented everything. Hours and hours of footage still exist that chronicles our shows, rehearsals, outings, road trips, and most of our history. I know this may not sound extraordinary to those of you that grew up in the age of cell phones, 
But remember, this was 1991. Cell phones existed, but only for very wealthy or privileged people. It would be at least another 10 years until the earliest and most primitive consumer cell phones even made their way into people's lives. When we landed in Los Angeles, we were met by a gaggle of photographers and videographers hired by Yamaha to capture our arrival. This was done, I'm sure, a bit on purpose to give us a little bit of the rock star experience. Anthony and I, very unaccustomed to flying at the time, had both taken Dramamine and were feeling entirely disheveled and out of it. I'm sure we looked like hell. Still, it was a nice touch on Yamaha's part. Very exciting. We were shuttled to the Sportsman's Lodge in Studio City, where we would be staying for several days. We met the members of the various other bands that we'd be competing against on national TV, all checking into the hotel at roughly the same time. All the groups had flown in from various locations across the U.S. Despite what you might think the vibe would have been, there was a sort of communal feeling of gratitude. We were all unsigned bands shooting for success. We had all made it to Hollywood, and we were all going to be on national television, and we were all in this together. We were considerably younger than the other groups, but they all treated us like equals. It was a really cool bunch of people. Our manager, Tony Gross, and his wife, Susan, had also flown out to be with us on their own dime, so we had a little bit of moral support in that department as well. We were assigned a tour manager for our time there that would be responsible for making sure we made our rehearsal times and who would also shuttle us around Los Angeles and Hollywood for the duration of our stay. We were each given several hundred dollars in per diem cash, a lot of money back then, and Jason, Anthony, and I all bought leather jackets on Rodeo Drive with the cash. Typical. Our tour manager's name was Chris Buttleman, and we all got along with him really, really well. His brother, Doug Buttleman, was one of the producers of the show, along with a guy named Bob Stabile, who, incidentally, was one of the A&R guys who had come to Rochester to catch our showcase gig. Chris had a guitar repair shop located at the studio rehearsal area where we would be filming the show. At the time we were there, he gave us a little tour. I immediately noticed a 12-string Martin acoustic guitar sitting on a stand in the corner of the room, and I asked Chris if I could pick it up and play it. He said, sure, man. And no sooner had I strummed a big G chord on it than Chris said to me nonchalantly, that belongs to Glenn Fry of the Eagles. We thought it was so cool that Chris was working on stuff for Glenn Fry. This exact moment was captured on video and appeared in our band introduction for a brief second leading up to our performance when the show aired. My favorite part of that moment was the audio portion that never actually made it to air. I should mention that the guitar happened to be drastically out of tune when I strummed it. I smiled and said, it's out of tune, and laughed. Jason's quick wit kicked in at that moment, and he said, and that's why all those Eagles tunes sounded funny. We were some funny motherfuckers when we wanted to be. We had several tech rehearsals over several days prior to the show, where the crew figured out camera and lighting cues for our appearance. They assigned each of us a tech for our gear, who took fastidious notes on our various setups and would ensure that we didn't have to do anything except show up and play. It's funny how we musicians can base success on the level of stuff you have to be responsible for. If you have a tech for anything, you must have made it. Every musician listening right now is smiling because you know I'm right. Each band would perform two songs for the filming. If a particular band ended up winning, 
their second song would then be aired. The song that got us into the contest in the first place was a song called Blue Sky, which ended up appearing on our debut album, New Generation. That was the song the producers wanted in the show, so that's what we played. We also performed our song Charity as a secondary option. The show was hosted by Dweezil Zappa, son of the legendary Frank Zappa, and Holly Robinson, who was an actress famous for her role on the television show 21 Jump Street. Dweezil had also been a regular on MTV at the time as a VJ and was, and still is, an amazing guitarist and musician, much like his famous father. Both of them were very, very nice. Dweezil was immediately taken with the blonde Fender Stratocaster that was my main guitar back then, and during rehearsals, he and I had several conversations about guitars and gear. And this could be my 19-year-old imagination running away with me, but Holly Robinson, who would later become Holly Robinson Pete after she married Rodney Pete, the famous NFL quarterback, seemed very taken with me. Either that or she just really liked our band. It's probably the latter, but she pulled me aside in the hallway on the day of the show and gave me a wistful look and said, I really dig your shit. I swooned a little. She was lovely. The judges for the show ranked very high on the holy shit meter for all of us. Robin Zander, vocalist from Cheap Trick, John Entwistle, bassist for The Who, Randy Jackson of American Idol fame, who we only knew at the time as Randy Jackson, bassist for Journey, and lastly, legendary producer Chris Lord Alge would be watching and scrutinizing our performance. I'm not even sure how we did it. I flashed right back to listening to Cheap Trick and The Who records in my bedroom as a kid. Cheap Trick was really big for me, but The Who was even bigger. They were my very first favorite band. Knowing John Entwistle himself was going to be judging me was something I almost had to block out in order to even function. And by the way, I also had to sing in front of Robin Zander. Robin fucking Zander. Forget it. Anthony had it doubly bad. I realize Randy Jackson is known to most people as an American Idol judge, but the truth is, he's a fucking amazing bassist and musician. He was touring with Journey at the time, and we were all very familiar with his prowess on the bass. Anthony had to play in front of Randy and John Entwistle. Crazy. Several hundred paid actors and extras would make up the studio audience for the day. Yep, that's how they did it. Otherwise, it would have been an empty room. All the bands were nobodies. The whole music business is smoke and mirrors. Always has been. We were slated to be the first band on for the show, which was probably best for us. I'm not sure that between the judging panel and having to follow other bands that we would have been able to stay out of our own heads enough to do it. At least I know I wouldn't have been able to. Our eventual performance, while tinged with palpable nerves, went pretty well, all things considered. This performance is on YouTube if anyone cares to look it up. Just search Exploding Boy Yamaha's Soundcheck and you'll find it. You can actually hear the fear in my voice as I sing the first lines of Blue Sky. We all settled in a bit as the song went on, but that's about as nervous as I've ever been for anything I've done. We did not end up winning in the end, but the experience was something none of us would ever forget. Several months later, the show aired nationally on ABC on New Year's Eve of 1991, heading into 1992. 
We all gathered as a band at our manager's house that night to ring in the new year with he and his wife and watched ourselves debut on national television. Keep in mind that there were only four major television networks at the time, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. Countless millions of people at home on New Year's Eve that year would tune in and get to see us perform. I still remember it like it was yesterday. One of the most exciting times of our lives, to be sure. Two, Star Search. Sometime in 1992, Exploding Boy was invited to audition for a show called Star Search, a precursor to shows like The X Factor, American Idol, The Voice, and America's Got Talent. It ran from 1983 to 1995 and was hosted by Ed McMahon, sidekick to legendary late-night talk show host Johnny Carson. Just a few names that got their start on Star Search were Beyonce, Drew Carey, Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Usher, Alanis Morissette, Leanne Rimes, Kevin James, and Dave Chappelle, and also country band Sawyer Brown, to name just a few. We made the drive from Rochester to New York City, which back then would take us anywhere from six and a half to seven hours, depending on traffic and stops. It was a drive we were all too familiar with, having done it countless times to perform showcase gigs for major record labels over the previous few years. My parents were kind enough to allow us to drive one of their minivans, which they used as business vehicles to deliver wedding cakes for the bakery that they owned. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Our manager, Tony Gross, accompanied us on the drive along with another Star Search hopeful, a black R&B singer who incidentally would end up getting on Star Search, also from Rochester, a guy named Keith McFadden. Jason, Anthony, and I all met Keith for the very first time early that morning when we picked him up. We liked him right away. He was easygoing and had an amazing sense of humor, which was something that would always win us over very quickly. We rarely took anything or ourselves very seriously for very long, so Keith fit right in. Six to seven hours in a vehicle back then, with only CDs or the radio to listen to or magazines to read, would often degenerate quickly into slap-happy fits of laughter or deep conversations on every topic under the sun. On this particular day, it involved all of us doing our finest impressions of Michael McDonald from the Doobie Brothers for the better part of six hours. No joke. At one point on the trip, Keith, myself, Jay, and Anthony were singing the song What a Fool Believes in a hilarious four-part harmony all in character as Michael McDonald. And just when the laughter would die down and things would get quiet again, someone would either say something or sing something in the Michael McDonald voice, and we'd be off again and rolling with hysterical laughter. By the time we pulled into New York City, I'm sure Tony, our manager, who had driven most of the way, was ready to be out of the van and away from our juvenile humor. As it so happens, we arrived several hours ahead of our scheduled audition time, which was to be held at SIR rehearsal facilities, so we had some time to kill. Tony made a phone call, and as luck would have it, arranged for all of us to get a tour of one of New York City's most legendary recording studios, a place called The Power Station. The studio was founded and managed by a guy named Tony Bon Jovi, who was the cousin of, you guessed it, John Bon Jovi. Bruce Springsteen, Paul Simon, Tony Bennett, David Bowie, Madonna, Herbie Hancock, Bob Dylan, 
and many others recorded iconic albums in this facility. We were very excited for our personal tour. Tony Bon Jovi himself greeted us as we arrived and was clearly happy to be giving us a tour of his studio. We chatted a bit in the lobby and he got right to it. Come with me this way, guys. I'll show you Studio A. We walked down a hallway and through a doorway into an amazing-looking control room. There was a guy standing at the mixing console with his back to us when we entered the room. Tony said, Oh, hey, man, sorry to barge in. I'm just giving a quick tour to some people here. And then he turned to us and said these words, which almost seemed like they came out in slow motion. Guys, this is Michael McDonald. The man at the console turned around to greet us, and to our complete and utter astonishment, it was none other than the man himself. Michael fucking McDonald from the Doobie Brothers. The man with one of the most iconic voices in music, and the guy who we'd all been imitating for hours on end leading up to this chance meeting. He was very nice, very warm. He shook all our hands and said hello as every last one of us bounced between pure shock, stifled laughter, and just utter and complete disbelief. Had we somehow conjured Michael McDonald? Unreal. And I know what you're thinking, but I swear on my life that this actually happened. And that wasn't the end of the funny and surreal events for the day. If the Michael McDonald incident wasn't as huge a thing as it was, this next thing wouldn't be as much of an afterthought as it's going to seem like. Several hours later, when we arrived at SIR, ready to audition for Star Search, we were asked to wait in the lobby area outside the room we'd be auditioning in. There were multiple rehearsal rooms on all sides that were clearly being used by various bands, as was evidenced by the muffled cacophony of about ten different bands all playing different kinds of music behind each door. Anthony and I were sitting quietly together on a bench facing the restrooms when a door off to our left opened up and out walked Fred Snyder and Kate Pearson of the band The B-52s. We recognized them immediately from having seen their videos on constant rotation on MTV at the time. Something very strange happens to your brain when you see someone famous out of context like that. And it's happened enough times in my life for me to recognize it. It's like you can't wrap your head around the three-dimensionality of that person. You kind of wonder, is that really them? And it never gets any less weird. Kate and Fred's movements seemed almost choreographed. They were both dressed in full stage regalia. Fred looked at us, Kate looked at us, and they both continued walking. He went into the men's room in front of us, she went into the ladies' room in front of us. Anthony and I took a single beat to register this, and then we just looked at each other and burst out laughing. What a day. Our audition went really well, but sadly, we were not asked to be on Star Search. Keith passed his audition and would go on to appear on the show and would do quite well. That was cool enough for us. Keith was one of us by now, having shared one of the most surreal experiences of our lives. And the way we looked at it, a victory for one was a victory for all. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M I S T E R. 
M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening.